on the last day of my work in Singapore uh, over my two years there, I asked someone, how old do you think I am? And he took a guess. Well, I was like 22 at that point. And he yeah. was like, oh, probably 40. Oh, damn. <laughs> I was like, oh, man, you're like, this ruined my day. Like, <laughs> Yeah, but this happens all the time. It's the beard and the turban, man. I'm telling you, like a lot of people never get it right. The beard adds years for sure. That's all it faces. And then the turban's right there. So people can't tell immediately. It happens to everybody, I think. And I remember I was like, oh man, you're like, no no free meal for you. And he's like, no, I, I, what I'm trying to tell you is that you're very intellectual in the way you talk. And I'm like, no, it's too late. You can't change it. Couldn't save it. <laughs> Welcome to Brood in Bangkok, the podcast about the people you meet in the city that makes a hard man crumble. Yo, Siddhant here, and today we're going to talk a little bit about identity. I assume many of you listening have traveled to numerous foreign countries, or you are immigrants yourselves. Having moved around for studies in my early 20s, I have to say that immersion into a new culture is a constant period of shock and, frankly, change. One day you're eating something new and the next day some festival is going down below your house. It is hard to keep a track of your own identity, especially if you have to keep it centered when you are in a foreign land trying to get used to a new culture. Which is why our next guest, Surasit Sachdev, is such a shining example of success in today's globalized world. A diaspora or a community or society that now lives in a country that is not its native land is nothing new in human society. But it is easy to forget that every country in the world has a large variety of diaspora. Today, I want to talk about the Thai Sikh community that has moved to Thailand, well, maybe like the early 20th century, from the India-Pakistan region of Punjab. It is important to note that the Thai Sikhs have been in Thailand longer than many members of the Indian or Pakistani diaspora. Sikhs have always had their own history and culture in my country of India. Which is why I always find it fascinating to find them thriving in other countries around the world. Surasit tells me a little bit more about the Sikhs of Thailand. And he discusses his upbringing as a third generation Sikh in Thai society. We then talk a bit more about his move into entrepreneurship and his startup Hungry Hub. Surasit's story might be very relevant to some of us because of the various reasons that we encounter in our day-to-day -day lives. But we should also remember that his journey might be similar to perhaps our children or our future children growing up in Thailand. Anyway, I hope that the other takeaway we all get from this episode is that diversity exists in Thailand in colorful and nuanced ways in places we aren't even looking at. And it's definitely contributing to the growth of this wonderful country. It was really fun chatting with Surasit about his life in Bangkok and his life outside Bangkok before coming right back and really starting something for himself. And Hungry Hub is going to be a really good tool if you like eating out. It's an app that uh, you can get on any of the popular app stores and uh, you should definitely check it out. By the way, I have recorded this with the help of Carsten and Lou Pobjecki, our amazing audio engineer. So thanks, Lou, and please enjoy the episode. Bangkok is the way you started out and... Uh... How did it start like for you and your family? Because you're from a different community in Thailand. It's not quite the Indian community, 
but it's one of the original communities from India to move to Thailand pretty early on in the 20th century, right? Correct. So I am a third generation Thai Sikh. We call ourselves Thai Sikh. Basically, I think we have a lot of the Thai influence and a lot of the Sikh influence as well in our daily lives, like the food we eat, the celebrations, all that kind of thing. So we follow a lot of the Thai culture as well, as well as, well as the Sikh or Indian culture. So my grandparents moved to Thailand about in the 1940s and 1950s during the Indian-Pakistan partition. And since then, we've been living in Thailand. So yeah, it's been th- I'm, I'm the third generation. Okay, that's uh, that's pretty interesting. And, and I believe that most of the people had moved mostly to Bangkok and not really to any other uh, regions of Thailand. Is that a fair assumption? Actually, I would say that in the beginning, early days, a lot of people moved throughout Thailand. Bangkok, just because it's a business hub, it's a central area. But I would say that my family moved to northeastern part of Thailand, which is near the border of like Laos. And they were doing a lot of trading with like Laos and the Indochina side. So initially, my grandparents were living there for like, I'd say like my dad was born there. And then he moved to Bangkok. Like which, to do which, uh, which city's village are we talking about here? That's called Mukdahan, which is on the Isan side of Thailand. So it's Isan is is northeastern. So yeah, that that's a different community altogether. It's very small, very like very different from Bangkok. Yeah. So I I think the other thing is a lot of people moved because they had uh, some family already based in Thailand doing some kind of trade, and uh, the Indo Pak sort of uh, border tension. And the partition, as it's called in our uh, history, was a very, very difficult time for the region. There's a lot of upheaval, violence. People were really scared. And actually, a lot of people lost everything. So taking a big chance like this, I think, was uh, considered not just some kind of calculated risk, but something that had to be done for your family's safety, you know. Correct. I mean, I mean, a lot of the Sikhs that moved to Thailand were mainly from the Pakistan side. So... Basically, they have to give up their house, basically move everyone, their whole family here uh, because that was basically given to the other community. And yeah, I mean, they what they did was a lot of people, some people were trading with Malaysia, Singapore. I mean, back then there was no Singapore, but Malaysia was a big chunk. Thailand was some sort, mainly these two countries in Southeast Asia, I would say. There's a few in Burma, there's a few... In other countries too, but I think like uh, Malaysia and Thailand were the main countries in Asia. But then otherwise, there's like South Africa, England, Canada, which was all like basically wherever the British rule. The Indians moved there, but that's not mainly due to the partition. It was more along with wherever they were ruled. I mean, it's very interesting, especially the Sikh community, because uh, they're such valued members of, uh, uh, like the British saw them as such valuable members of their uh, empire. They got to travel quite a few places. And I don't know if you know this, but there's also a very prominent Sikh community in Shanghai. Yeah, because uh, again, they took them across as sort of uh, military escorts and things like that, part of the army. And they settled there. And like, uh, like you guys over in Thailand, there's also a bunch of people from the Sikh community over in Shanghai and very interesting uh, how the Sikh community has sort of spread across the world in this way. Yeah. 
that was for the army aspect this is more about more the, yeah so the yeah so there is like two sides of where people travel but now i guess it's just a global world so everyone travels everywhere from education absolutely absolutely but so tell us a bit more about this community that settled in uh, thailand and uh, traders what did they trade in what is the byword here for trade for the sikhs in thailand so a lot of a lot of sikhs when they started off i would say majority were doing textile business so textile trading usually like they started off as being just a wholesaler or a retailer doing buy low sell high from like buying from other cities or buying from bangkok so for in in my family what we did was we bought in bangkok sold in mukdahan which is like far away people don't really travel or ship stuff back in the day so it was mainly like traders going around to pick up things and coming to sell so it started with like one roll of basically like cloth which is like maybe 100 yards my grandfather started by working for someone and then he decided to start doing his own so he didn't have savings or anything basically came like because his uncle was doing some trading or he hired him on and then we started from that from scratch basically from the very bottom and then we started having a shop house then we had a house then we get in, got into factories so a lot of six basically they went vertical integration all the way so from just doing retailer to wholesaler then became a manufacturer then doing exports and all the other things followed on okay i mean that's very interesting like it, it sort of built up from there and within basically half a century i think a very sort of opportune business sort of decision that these guys made was to purchase prime property in a lot of uh, areas in thailand which uh, well then when the developing cities of bangkok and well, and some of the other industrial areas started to need more land to develop there was a bit of a windfall for the the sikh community i mean they sold a bunch of property and made quite a bit of money off that so yeah there's two reasons to that one is so sikh has like a subset in the community as well there's like like christians have like catholic and seven day adventists and yeah sure, all the other sure. protestants and all so that other right? denominations within sikhism yeah so so in sikhism there is a group called namtaris which is like they believe in i would say same one god concept but like some philosophy that might be different and then there is neeltari which is uh, so namtari they will be wearing white turban neeltari will be wearing blue turban but sikhs generally like the general the community is just like where any color usually yeah, black yeah that that's what i'm familiar with yeah i mean over here everybody just wears whatever but i had no idea this was the case yeah yeah mainly in thailand and a few other countries these community exist and they believe in like a different like prophet or like a living god that they look up to so the lucky thing about them was the temple that temple was based in asok which is next to like terminal 21 yeah, yeah. so in the indian culture people usually live around the temple when yeah, they move yeah absolutely yeah so they because that's where it's like you're a minority you live around yeah were like quite religious people so it's like living around the temple creating your own community so a lot of people have houses around a so sukumvit area from nana absolutely to yeah yeah back then like this was not prime area and it's it's really cheap land 
So a lot of people were like, okay, you buy more land around your area. You know, it's nothing. It's not an investment. It's just you have money. You just, yeah, that's where you're going to live, right? So this yeah, is a Namdari so, community that had the yeah. uh, Gurudwara over there. Yeah, so their Gurdwara is still based there. It's like right behind Terminal 21. It's a huge land, like probably like 1,600 square meter area. Or... So it's in the lane behind Terminal 21. I don't think I've ever spotted it. Actually, wait, I have. I have seen it. Yeah, it's in Soil 21 on the main Asok Road. Yeah, right. Asok Montri Road, right? Yeah, yeah. So that was one part of how the Sikhs got a lot of land in, in the prime area. But the second part that a lot of Sikhs started buying land was mainly, I would say, because the textile industry started to slow down where in about, I don't exactly remember the year, but it's when China started opening their country and subsidizing manufacturers and they were going into factories, exporting products, like all, all different categories. Perhaps to be early 2000s or something like that, right? Yeah, yeah. So at that time, like a lot of Sikhs already have so many factories they were like building and then suddenly no one was buying from them because China price was like one third of the price because the government is subsidizing everything on the machine cost to the factory building to even the labor is so cheap at that time. So basically a lot of people were struggling at that point because like the price dropped, they could hardly break even. So then people like, there's no long term in this business because if other countries can drop the price crazily like this, then how are we going to survive? Right. And the traders were on both sides of the community, right? Like then both sects of uh, Sikhs had traders in textiles. So yeah, the traders which remain traders also, and there are traders that went into become a manufacturer. Okay. So the trader usually buys from the manufacturer. Sure. Yeah. But then the fact is that now there is a cheaper manufacturer elsewhere, and then their clients are obviously looking for cheaper price all the time. So people were ordering like containers of stuff from China versus like manufacturing it in Thailand. So that became a problem for a lot of the Sikh communities. A lot of factories closed down. I would say like 80, 90% of the factories that was there then are like closed down. So and that's the last like 15 years or so? Yeah, I would say like maybe even 10 or 12 years. So at that point was when a lot of people started looking at investing in like land and properties and hotels. So at that point, like a lot of people were like, oh, there's a bunch of cash lying around. What do I do? You know, and, and they at that point, a lot of, Sikhs that were doing at that time was mainly second generation. A lot of Sikhs, second generation, they had to like drop out from school or like they didn't go to college. They went straight to helping family business because at that point, family business wasn't like, wow, it was struggling. It needed people to come in. And and the Sikh community is about everything. It's very family oriented. So you don't want to hire employees to grow your business, but mainly run by It's very family. Indian thinking. Why should I hire someone? My son can do it. You know? Correct. Yeah. <laughs> so a lot of Sikhs dropped out. So all of them are like street smart, but I don't think they went to business school or anything to come up with like business plan idea to do something. So it's like, okay, what do I do? And a lot of Sikhs were getting into the hotel business or a lot of people already have properties from before, like I said, the Namtari community. So they're like, Oh, it seems like they're doing quite well. Why don't we follow that pattern? Yeah. And I guess Bangkok was also developing a lot around that time and they needed more land, more prime commercial real estate to put up all the malls and stuff. I can tell you the story of my family. Like We were looking at actually buying a house to stay and we were looking at different places, like maybe making it into an apartment along with like staying in like the rooms and 
And then my dad got into this land, which he didn't even think about the hotel. So when he bought the land, he was still looking at making service apartment, which it was already an old building or service apartment. Initially, he was thinking to stay here, but the location like Nana is more like red light area. It's not yeah, really yeah. the best for... Not a great family location. Yeah, so it's not really a family part. So then he decided that, okay, people were suggesting to him, why don't you make hotel? And so it wasn't like intentionally, like I'm going to get into hotel business, but it, I guess it started as a idea of like, you know, where do I invest next? And it just slowly turned into a hotel and one hotel became second, third, fourth. So it okay. kept going. And you guys always had land in Phuket at this point? No, no. So Bangkok was first, then we looked into like, then Bangkok became a bit more expensive after we had like savings to look at the second hotel. Then I guess my dad went to look at Patea, looked at other places and, and I guess Phuket worked out based on like the value, the area. So it's an investment opportunity that worked out. Then one became two, became three. So now he's not investing anymore in Bangkok. It's mainly Phuket. Oh, that's very interesting. It's sort of like a, it's watching expats. Well, now third generation, pretty much Thai family sort of expanding into their world, growing into their community as it were. And before any of this happened, I guess you were also sort of finding your way in, in uh, Thai society. So how did that work out? Because you're not exactly a Thai kid, but you identify as Thai, right? I grew up in Thailand most of my life. Like the, I went to school basically from kindergarten to high school. I was born here. So I speak Thai. I understand Thai culture. I eat Thai food. I live the Thai way to a certain extent. But the looks still define us. We, I, I have turban and beard which basically clearly makes you look different from the that turns uh, heads even in india right now but yeah <laughs> i can't yeah. i mean i can see it in thailand when when uh, the sikhs walk by everyone sort of knows <laughs> and maybe they may not acknowledge it like they used to because bangkok's pretty cosmopolitan and i guess yeah. you guys have been around a while but uh, it is a sight i mean it is yeah. an interesting <laughs> sight to see yeah it's still the when we see sikh strangers or friends still a common thing because it, it's a rare thing to find but i think what we did was in the beginning obviously bullies and stuff does happen in schools and all but that i guess happens like to everyone who's weak yeah or different yeah or different but once you show your your strength unique value or you become close to people then i think that kinds of go away and yeah but it's pretty interesting still because uh you're raised in both the cultures in a way i mean we discussed this as well, and even when I have been adding you onto Skype and stuff, your name given by your parents, at least your Indian name is Manveer Singh, which is a pretty uh, regular Indian name. Manveer Such, it's Manveer Singh Suchdev, right? Or is it just Manveer right. Suchdev? Yeah. And uh, you have a Thai name as well, which is the right. actual like legal name, I guess, is what you use yeah. in day-to-day life. Yeah. So you have a bit of a double identity here, like Bruce Wayne and Batman, <laughs> like. Manveer Singh by day, Surasit by night, or kind of, you know, something going like that. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of story to talk about that, but usually uh, for family, like, we refer to Indian name or, like, friends in the Indian community. But for Thai people, the same Manveer, they usually go wrong with that. So, yeah, in schools and at work, at universities and like all the legal documents and everything is always go by Surasit or I have a nickname Sid. 
Manveer is only for people who know me in the community or don't look at my passport or ID card that don't need it, you know, because in school, they need to refer to your identity based on official document transcript. So for me, that that is everything is Manveer. But yeah, I, I do have my Facebook name as Manveer. So only the people who know me will figure out. So <laughs> we don't get, I don't get random strangers that maybe a big Hungry Hub fan or hate Hungry Hub. <laughs> Hungry Hub fans. <laughs> Y'all won't find him unless you know the real name. <laughs> like, not so, bad. Yeah. yeah. So I, I try to keep maybe things different on my LinkedIn and So that's work related. But I, I do have to justify sometimes whether my line name or my Skype name, which one should it be based on what I'm using it for, that kind of yeah. thing. Because sometimes people can't find you. Yeah, but this is, this is something that happens even in the Sikh community here. Like you have your given name, but everyone in your family usually gives you a nickname. So like Happy Correct. or Monty or uh, Correct. you know something like that. And I always ask people, but in your head, what do you call yourself? Like... Do you call yourself Manveer or do you call yourself Surasit when you're talking to yourself? Manveer, don't do this. Or Surasit, don't do this. What is it? Uh, <laughs> actually never thought about that. I don't have, I don't, I think it depends on the situation automatically. I'm, like, I'm so used to it, the fact that the name automatically switch based on who I'm talking to. Ah, okay. So in Thai, it's probably Surasit talking to himself. But in like <laughs> yeah. Punjabi or Hindi or English, yeah, yeah. it might be Manveer saying something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, correct. So you had this time growing up in Thai society and integrating. And how did that go? Other than the few incidents of bullying, like what did you find about growing up in Bangkok through the system, as it were, that really affected you or really helped you out? So, I mean, in Thailand, I think what really benefited me, I would say, is the fact that I learned another language, another culture. Whereas if I grew up in like, India would still know or like English and Punjabi or uh, Hindi, which I do know English, Punjabi, Hindi and Thai. So it's a, I would say like a third language, but actually I look at Thai as my first or second language and Punjabi and Hindi as my more like my third language because I'm not living there. I don't use it on a regular basis. I'm not so confident. I can understand. I can't speak like fluently with correct grammar. I can't read it as much. I can more of like not read or write, but more like speak and understand. So that side. So in terms of Thai, like I think basically it becomes advantage for me compared to even the Thai community because not all Thais can speak English, let alone a third language. So for me, living in Thailand, being a uh, knowing three languages is definitely one. Second thing is probably. Growing up here, understanding ways of doing business or people or like connections has helped me in my current entrepreneurship journey. It wouldn't make much difference in the corporate world, but it does make a lot of difference in the entrepreneurship side. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, I think you had quite a bit of experience in the corporate world because you uh, did finally study outside when you went to, I believe, Australia, you're talking about? Correct, correct. So I did my undergrad in Australia. So after finishing my school, I'm a little bit of a unique case. I graduated from school at like 17 and a half, I think. And I, I was in Australia for like two years and like three months for my undergrad. So I graduated when I was like 19. My undergrad, I was done. So it's like a lot of people were still graduating from high school. Like a lot of my friends at my age 
So I was already started working in the bank before I was 20. Wow. So you, you fast-tracked your uh, academic career in a way. Yeah. And in a way, because I came back, I studied abroad. I can speak English and Thai. Like my position was already slightly higher than many people in the bank. So it was like this 19-year-old kid, like, what is he doing? Like, like, But I had to earn my respect, especially in Thailand, where it's a very hierarchical. The first thing they ask you is, how old are you? So that they can call you either like, like you know, like a P, or a which nong. in Thai means like, yeah, yeah. yeah so a nong, which this is one thing I don't like about Thailand, the fact yeah. that they ask you about the age, because it basically feels like if you're not old enough, you can't do a lot of things. Yeah. I mean, that's very peculiar because uh, India is not less hierarchical, but I guess we're less discriminatory to age, I, I think, because it's like you just call everyone bhai, which is the same thing, but it's just there's no younger or older, it's just bhai, like, Correct. you know, but uh, here in Thailand, it needs to be established. Yeah. And it's not by your rank, but it's by even if you call your employee who are older than you, you have to call them P sometimes. Like for me, I'm more international. So I don't expect anyone to call me that or I don't call them that. And it's established from day one. So right. it's okay. Right. But this is in my company where I create the culture. But if I'm going to work for someone else, I have to go by their culture. Yeah. Which in the bank, it had to be like everyone was P for me. right? So yeah. that's how it worked in Thailand. For, for a year, I had to live through that. Then I got opportunity to go and work abroad in Singapore. Uh, and this is all, all with Standard Chartered Bank? Yeah, Chartered all Bank. within Standard Chartered Bank. So I moved there. I was doing for a year of doing management report, like information, so like data analytics, doing like all these numbers, weekly, monthly updates and stuff like that. For all the sexy work that bankers do. <laughs> it was more internal, so pleasing the bosses and all that kind of thing. So that's what I did in Singapore for a year. It was a big promotion, but a good thing was in Singapore, there's no hierarchy. So the age wasn't even a question. Like actually it was a joke that on the last day of my work in Singapore, uh, over my two years there, I asked someone, how old do you think I am? And he took a guess. Well, I was like 22 at that point, And he yeah. was like, oh, probably 40. Oh, damn. I was like, oh man, you're like just ruined my day. And like, <laughs> yeah, but this happens all the time. It's the beard and the turban, man. I'm <laughs> telling you, like a lot of people never get it right. The beard adds years for sure. That's all it faces. And then the turban's right there. So people can't tell immediately. It happens to everybody, I think. And I remember I was like, oh man, you're like, no, no free meal for you. And he's like, no, I, I, what I'm trying to tell you is that you're very intellectual and in the way you talk. And I'm like, no, it's too late. You can't change it. <laughs> Couldn't save it. <laughs> okay. But yeah, I get a lot of that. Like people usually tell me that I'm like at least 32 or 35 when I was like 24, 25. So like you said, the, the beard, which I think working in the corporate world, it helped me because it basically... People automatically look at that as respect in other countries uh, because when you ask your age, it feels like you're discriminating if you ask yeah, someone for this. This is age. a grown man sitting in front of us, guys. He's <laughs> he's seen things. Look at that beard, like <laughs> yeah. So like going into like management meetings and stuff, like people didn't like look at you like, oh, who is this new fresh graduate doing? You know, so. In Singapore, I got to see more like the more professional level work. People do things much faster there. The culture in Thailand is people work till like seven or eight. 
they basically sit and talk, like go for coffee and this and that. But in Singapore, it's like work hours is work hours and everyone finish at like 5.30 or 6 and they head home. So it's very work-life balance, you can see it. Sure. But they work really efficiently and very hard during the working hours. And I see that the, I've worked in India as well. And India is similar to Thailand, like Absolutely. where people yeah. stay in office till like 8 or 9 or 10. And they get to office at like 10 in the morning instead of like 8.30. Yeah. And yeah, it's a bit more like slow and chill. And, but I, understanding the culture and understanding people makes it because for me to start a business, if I if I didn't go through that working in the corporate world, it would be very different in terms of like people management and skills. Absolutely. So why did you leave Stanchart then? You were doing well. They loved you. So yeah, I was basically growing like in three years. I, I was doing three different positions with three, three different boss. I learned a lot and I felt like, I remember before I left, I got a few job offers to stay internally or going to other banks in Singapore. But I was like, that's not what I want to keep doing because I, I realize that the higher the rank you go within a corporate world, there's a lot of like red tape and like internal pleasing and like being on someone's side and the other side. And I felt like that's not what I'm in for. Like I want to do something that really adds value to the society, the customer, or basically like living to the purpose of why the bank is operating, you know, something creating innovations and all that. So like, I felt like that wasn't really part of the work that I was doing anymore. So I decided that, okay, I think it's my time to move on and maybe get on something that is more challenging. And For me, I always like to challenge myself and I, I feel like I enjoy challenges. So I felt one of the biggest challenge which a person can face at this age and day is starting something from scratch uh-huh. and that's when you got bit by the entrepreneurial bug as it were huh <laughs> that's when i decided that okay i'm gonna go back to thailand because in singapore to start a business there i probably have to have a lot of capital uh have a house there that i don't have to pay rent or like so yeah i was like no it's not gonna happen at this time yet so let me move i guess all the dollar signs were flashing before your eyes and you're like no 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 <laughs> yeah so i moved to thailand in 2011, end of 2012, I think I, I had a few ideas that I was looking at, but didn't pinpoint it down. But Hungry Hub was one of the ideas back then. Okay. Why don't you tell us about some of the pie in the sky ideas you had so we know what your process was in a way? I was basically looking, talking to people like, you know, what idea? I thought about entrepreneurship in general. I didn't think of, I didn't know startup, I didn't know technology startup at that point. And I don't think it was. This was 2011, right? People were not even talking about it in Asia. It was only a Silicon Valley concept. So back then I was looking at ideas of like opening a, I, I think I have a paper of like an idea, which I, I still have to find it. But it was like opening a exchange, a currency exchange booth or doing a cocktail in a can. Okay. Cocktail in a can sounds great. For airlines and stuff because yeah. there's no time to mix. So it's like a pre-mix cocktail in a bottle or can whatever that you can serve in hotels rooms and all that kind of thing that was my idea which i think it got done a few years later i saw it and i was like oh i should have done that but i was like i don't want to get into alcohol business just because of the fact that it doesn't fit my yeah it's not who you are yeah so and i don't i don't drink so i was like okay i'm not gonna sell something i don't consume you know yeah that's fair yeah 
So that was the initial idea state. Then I came to Thailand. I read a lot. I did a lot of research, talked to a lot of people, then came up with the Hungry Hub idea. Okay. Then looked into Open Table in the US as an example, read like their whole annual report, try to understand like what's the potential and everything. And then I realized that, okay, I don't have the right team because I talked to a few tech guys and I was like, I can't depend everything on outsourcing. I need a team to operate or own this that I can trust. Sure. Because yeah. it's technology business is not one time you build a website and that's it. It's an ongoing building, adjusting and fluctuating and all that. So I realized that, okay, I need someone on the team that is really good on the tech side, that is good on the marketing side, because I can only do sales, business, development, ideas, all that kind of thing. I, I think before we get more into Hungry Hub, some of the research uh, which we looked into, did you also have another business in Phuket, an escape room? Oh, yes. <laughs> ah, did we forget that? Or is that... Uh... Ah, I didn't want to talk about that. But yeah, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you a little bit about that too. Okay. Uh, that was after my MBA program. So at 2012, when I was deciding, I decided on having a team. So I went to MBA program at Bangkok called University called Sasin. Okay. Which was a two-year program and I did exchange at Water. It's one of the most premier MBA programs, if not the premier program in uh, Thailand, isn't it, for MBA yeah. studies? Yeah, so people refer to it like more like Harvard for Thailand because it's basically where like a lot of the alumni are like major C like CEOs of like big companies or public companies or family owners, all that. So... The education fee is the same as going to UK to study, including on living costs and everything. So usually it's for returning Thais, like Thais who have either lived abroad or did their undergrad abroad and want to build a local base. So it's you, basically. Yeah, so I, half the class were like basically the similar profile as me, which it was good in a way because everyone was, even though they're from a very wealthy background, they're all very humble and like they came for the same purpose to like network, to learn, to grow that connection in the home base. So yeah, for me, I think it, it worked out perfectly. I didn't know about the school as much. I didn't read so much, but it just, it was like a lucky shot for me. So after my MBA program, while I was doing my MBA, I started talking to this girl who's now my wife and she was the one behind escape hunt that you were asking she is like a big fan she wanted to do something entrepreneurial she was looking at a few franchising of like a restaurant or something from overseas and then the idea of escape hunt because she enjoys all these activities yeah yeah we went to play once on her birthday and then she went to play once more and then they sent out an email saying that we're looking for franchise you know opportunities whoever's interested and was she assassin with you or? No, no. I got to know her when I was working in Singapore, but she's from Bangkok as well. So she and one of her close friends slash my cousin and then me, three of us, we all liked this idea. We looked at the financials only. We didn't even look at like operations, investment or anything. We just look at the opportunity that how much can we earn with this business a month. Then basically it's based on the existing branch in Bangkok, which we didn't even look at the business, the market overview. We just said that my family has a hotel in Phuket. Maybe we can set it up there because they're looking for one city, one operation. So we opened that 
and then we kept trying to push it for a year. I was there every once a month at least. Yeah, yeah. And this was already me starting Hungry Hub at the same time in Bangkok. Okay. So you had two hats on, managing two different businesses. And I was working at Sassin at the Entrepreneurship Center. So I actually had three hats on. Wow. Okay. For, yeah. That was more part-time. Hungry Hub was full-time. Escape Hunt was also, I can say like full-time because you're an owner, but not really sitting there. So that was tough, man, because investing so much money and mainly my parents' money. Yeah. Trying to drive it for like three years. We couldn't get it up like to even like on a monthly, we were like just break even on the car, but we couldn't cover our investment at all. I guess, yeah. And because thinking about it like now, like looking at it in hindsight, like Phuket is a beach town. So we were like, business was doing well when it was raining, but otherwise it was very slow. And I think, I look at it in a way that I feel like if you can't eat, live, and sleep with your business, mm. don't get into it. That's my philosophy. And that's what my dad told me Like after I launched it for like six months. And he's like, if you're not going to do it, I suggest you cut your losses and just close it down. Right, right, right. And I was like, no, there is huge opportunity. We'll try this. We'll try that. We dragged it for another year, spent a little bit more money. Didn't work out. Simply was because my wife was doing... Uh, full-time job in Bangkok. My other partner had a tailor shop in Bangkok. So none of us was there. It's just employees running it. Yeah. And you can never like get 100% from employees when you're not directly overseeing them, I guess. Correct. And then for them, it's like they're just getting paid to do the work. It's not like they don't care whether you make profit or not. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's not their job in, in so many ways. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we realized soon enough that, okay, it took basically we did like a three year rental. So we covered our three years and we were like, okay, we're not extending it. It's, it's time we call it quits and we cut our losses. Yeah. I mean, even TripAdvisor sort of moved away from promoting the escape room concept is what uh, we found through our research over here. So how did you feel about that? Like another business directly affecting your long term prospects there? I mean, in the beginning, when we when we bought the franchise, the guy was telling us that TripAdvisor is everything. You just have to be number one on TripAdvisor. And here's how you get there. So we were like doing very well on that. In the beginning, we were like trying to let a lot of people come in at like cheaper price or whatever, wrote reviews or like all that. And we were getting to the top of the rank. And then realized, soon enough, TripAdvisor changed the algorithm and moved escape room to like a whole different section. So it became like fun things. Or like it was lost for a while, then it came back, then it moved. So it was like basically the total rank, our ranking algorithm just went like haywire and we became number one for fun things, which is not in the main things to do section. So you really have to search that section out. Yeah. So it's like, it became like number 10th or number 15 on like page one where you have to click into page two to look at it again. So it was Basically, the business value from like getting potentially 10 to 15 clients a day to like maybe 10 to 15 clients a month. So basically, like the potential that we saw went down by like five to 10 folds. And that was at that point, depending on that business and the whole Phuket scene is a basically like usually the taxis, there's a thing called tax mafia taxi. Basically yeah, they, taxi mafia. Yeah, yeah, so in, in Phuket, like, they charge you a premium and they will try to sell you all these different places where they get commission. Yeah, yeah. The commission structure is insane. 
uh, which we didn't understand also about doing business then. I guess you deal with this unorganized sector and they can sort of have you over the barrel and take whatever they want as well, right? Correct. And and it was it was a lot of things, a lot of factors, uh, tourism, like it became cheaper tourism. It was mainly like towards like last two, three years, Chinese tourists were coming in a lot, and mainly in like tour buses. So they don't really go to all this. So it's not individual travelers. Because back in the day, Phuket used to be target known for Scandinavian, where they come for like three weeks and relax because Phuket was not known to the public. So it's like very hideaway kind of place. Yeah. But now it's a mainstay, like pretty much. Yeah. Like uh, everyone knows about it. So they, they don't come back. So the people who are like big spenders, they don't come back. So now it's usually like just the standard tourist crowd where they go to like island tour and then they go for like elephant ride and maybe go kart and then they go back. So it's almost like a pre package. I guess you found out the fickle nature of business in a tourist market, you know? Yeah. I guess uh, that's a lesson learned, I guess, right? Yeah, and I think for me personally, looking at, back at it now, I feel like if you depend entirely on one segment, it's a very high risk on your business. So it's always like even malls in Bangkok that used to target tourists only realized after like when the airport closed and when there was like political situation, they had to switch their business model and get at least 50% locals to come regularly. Otherwise, yeah. I think the malls are much better for it as well. Like they're much more active and lively. And I think it's a good idea that they switched over to that model. So yeah, I mean, that was hard thing we learned. But I guess as an entrepreneur, you have to make mistakes and learn. Speaking of your father and family, I'm sure they must have also said, hey, you've got all these degrees. You've gone and sown your wild oats in Singapore and learned and lived by yourself. Why don't you bring all of that back and take over the family business? Did that conversation ever arise? Yeah, that happens all the time. Like the last, I would say, six or seven years. So since I graduated from undergrad, my brother, who was my basically my cousin brother, he joined the family business right away. Right. And that's hotels and textiles or just the hotels bit? When he graduated, we just built the first hotel. So he was handling that in Bangkok. And then we built the second one and he moved to Phuket. So since then, he's been living in Phuket. But like for me, that was always like, okay, now mind you work for outside for a year or two if you want and do your master's. So I worked one, two, three years. Then I did my master's according to the plan. And for him, he thought, okay, that's it. Like, you know, end of master's, come back and work for the family business. Then I was like, no, I want to do my own startup. And he didn't understand at that point, what is a startup? Yeah. <laughs> So I was like, I'm going to do this business. And the business idea that I had at that point for Hungry Hub and Escape Hunt was all very new. Like the family always like looked at like investments as in assets based or like something that really is known to the public that works. So these are all like new ideas, shady ideas for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's very Indian family mentality. It's like, why would you take risks in this way without consulting us you know and you got this empire why are you letting it go yeah so he always tells me that you know even now with hungry hub working so well like the turning point the hard point for me was about a year ago where hungry hub wasn't doing well for the last two years i mean for the first two years it wasn't doing very well 
and we were like deciding whether to close or not. And he was like, you know, you should decide. Like, I really need help with getting structure around my business because all my three, like I have one real brother and two cousin brothers in the family business. And I'm the only one that's not in that. So the pressure is even more, you know? Right, right. And he's like, you are the one with the MBA and no one else did masters. You're the one who worked outside. So I'm looking to you to come back and set structure and systems in place. Yeah, that will benefit us greatly in the future. Yeah. yeah. And even if it's a 10% growth in the business, it will add to this much value, which, you know, will increase so much, you know. And for me, I was like, but that's not a challenge. I look at hotel personally as a as an investment. I don't look at it as a business. For me, it's like you have... 90 rooms to fill in one hotel, let's say, uh, what more can you do? Like, you know, every day you keep filling 90 rooms, that's your capacity. Even though you work so hard to build another hotel, you have to spend X amount of money, which you can only do after four or five years, maybe, or 10 years after a certain investment. Sure. So I feel like it's more of an investment play than actual business play. I always want to do a business where the return is based on how hard you work. And there's no limit to it. Okay. So it's more like a platform business where it's two-sided market and you connect the two. The more you connect, the higher the value or the more transaction you create, the more value it becomes. Right. That was my mentality from like day one when I wanted to start a business. I don't want to start in something that I'm restricted by a capacity that I have based on the investment that I've done. Right. And then that's what Hungry Hub ended up becoming. So, yeah. So let's go through the journey of Hungry Hub here. Um, what started out and what it is now. Like, where do you think uh, you really got your foothold into the the market, as it were? And what is Hungry Hub for the uninitiated? Just a bit of background. So Hungry Hub started in 2000, late 2013. We had the idea, and we were like, okay, we had the team. We were like basically setting up the company. So early 2014, we set up the company, and then I did my exchange at Wharton in the US. So that six months, first six months, we were just developing system while I was away. So like just talking to programmers and stuff. But after six months, when I came back in June was when we actually started launching. And we, it was a online restaurant reservation, similar to Open Table, but for Thailand. Okay. So it was basically like a Open Table for Thailand. That's it. Sure. It's simple, as simple as that. It's just reservations online. Instead of calling the restaurant, you can reserve easier online. Okay. That was the only selling proposition. So we allow restaurants to accept 24 hours instant confirmation through the system that we built. So we went around talking to restaurants. Yeah, restaurants was like, yeah, sure, we'll join your platform. But the whole problem was I'm charging based on how many transactions I can bring to the restaurant. Sure. Which I didn't ask the customer side. I only asked the restaurant side because I thought they were the one who's paying me. I had to ask them. Right. But the one that is going to cause the transaction to happen in order for the restaurant to pay me is the customer. Sure, yeah. And I never asked them. And then I realized very late in the game that customers didn't need a reservation system. Yeah, they could just call somebody. Yeah, because in the US, why it worked in Europe and other countries, why it worked is when you call one restaurant, they say, oh, sorry, I'm full tonight. You call the next restaurant, say I'm full. Then you're like, where do I get a table? So then you look for all this open table, which tells you where you have available, where there is availability. Instead of calling 10 places, you can see right now there's 10 places that's available. So then you can book it easier. 
But the whole value proposition is instead of calling 10 plays, you open the app and you know where it is available. So that's a clear value proposition right? because it saves time, a lot of time. But for a customer in Bangkok who don't know Hungry Hub, they say, but why do I need it? I can call a restaurant and get a confirmation right away. Yeah, because a lot of people don't reserve tables, right? They just show up. Yeah, and the reason why people don't reserve tables is because tables are always available. Yeah. Because yeah. if you show up and it's full one time, you show up the second time it's full, the third time you will make sure that there is availability before you drive all the way there in the traffic of Bangkok, right? Yeah, for sure. So you will yeah. reserve. But the problem is that you don't ever walk into a restaurant that is full. Like it's, There's only a hundred or maybe a handful of restaurants that is like you need to reserve in order to get there. You can't walk in and get a table. Right. So right. there are. But those restaurants say, I like it this way. I don't want customers to be able to reserve or use a third party application. I want it to be hard for people to get a table with me. So I look premium and unique. So those are the Michelin restaurants and all that kind of thing. So it's for those restaurants, we can't get in. And for the other restaurants, people don't want to reserve. Okay. So then we struggle. We are like, how do we make money here? I mean, we were making some amount, but not like in an amount that were going to make us sustainable. So two years down the road, I was like, okay, either we're going to change our business a little bit or I'm quitting or like we hold, or everyone's leaving the team. So this is about June 2016. And then I was like, okay, one problem I have with the restaurant industry was I want to be able to control the cost or know how much I'm going to spend before I enter a restaurant. Okay. Yeah, that's a great idea. I mean, generally also, we don't want to pay extra or we don't know what it's going to be and we don't know what we're going to like. Correct. So that was my pain, especially because I'm in the food space and I used to take my team out every now and then. And I don't like to go to buffet restaurant because one is the food quality is not so good. Second is you don't get to sit and talk because everyone's always walking around getting food every five minutes. So I want to go to a place where it's nice a la carte, you know, like a good ambience, good food place, but control my cost. That was my whole motive. And I was like, let me try doing all you can eat at normal a la carte restaurants and see how it works. And my whole team was like, oh, it's not going to work. No restaurant's going to join you. They will lose money, this, that. So I started doing some research into how to make it sustainable. Because the key for me was I want to drive more traffic into restaurants, not in a discounted way, but in an upselling way. Because restaurants currently have attracting customers only through discounts, which is not sustainable in the long run. Because yeah, because uh, when the discount goes, the customer doesn't have any reason to return. Correct. So for me, if the customer is paying higher today, he or she might pay a normal price tomorrow to come back. So that was my mechanism and what I thought. Even at that point, I had like 200 restaurant partners. I had to convince 50 restaurants to get to one. And then I got one and it worked really well. Then I got the second one, third one. Then I was like, okay, things are moving quite well. Let us try it out. We decided to switch out all the normal reservations. 200 restaurants overnight, we just took it out. And we started from scratch, like 10, 15 restaurants, all you can eat. And now we are at 100 restaurants. And we were talking yesterday about a reality show that you were uh, part of with Hungry Hub. So uh, what was that about? We recently got called into one of the TV shows. It's called uh, The Unicorn Startup which is a Thai like startup 
similar to Shark Tank. There's no investment made. It's only like a prize award for the winner. It's a million baht. So for us who don't watch the show because for whatever reason, who's on the board over there? Who are the the sharks or the uh, the providers of the money? I think two like startup gurus, like they were like the startup companies, like very successful so far. And then one person was from K-Bank, which K-Bank was the show's sponsor. And in the final round, it was like the grab country, ex-country manager, or one of the co-founders of Grab, and the Line line app Thailand uh, managing director. There was a, a venture capital guy, two venture capital guys, and then one of the bank's president. So the Kasikom bank at managing director level was the judge for the final round because we were the top three team. Oh, wow. So we got a lot of very good exposure, a lot of downloads that happened overnight while the show was on air. Yeah. Uh, a lot of restaurants calling us, emailing us. So it was very good exposure, I would say, because on the show we were in the first 12 episodes, we were actually ranked number one. Oh, wow. Top three team had to like compete again and, and we didn't win the final round, but I think we did pretty well overall. Yeah. So you were on TV for a bit with Hungry Hub. How'd that go? As it for you personally? Were you recognized on the street? Oh, look, it's the Hungry Hub guy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like when I go for events here and there, like I go to the university that I work for and like people who I've never spoken to just walked up to me and like, yeah, I know you like really great app you're doing this and that. So a lot of my friends, my school friends, which uh, I've never spoken to in a long time, like messaged me like, oh, really cool stuff. I think what I really liked about the show was that it wasn't me trying to sell myself, but it was a show endorsing that it worked because there was like a point system and we were ranked like the top in terms of startup in Thailand and at least in the first 12 episodes. So it showed that whatever we are doing is valued by the public as well because it was like the first time when with the all-you-can-eat concept, we were going public. It was kind of our press release. Right. The ultimate press release. <laughs> yeah, it was like a perfect time to relaunch Hungry Hub. And then after that, we got a lot of like media to interview us and a few podcasts and magazines and all that. So overall, I think it has driven us. And it's basically kind of a validation for us that, hey, whatever we're doing, like the general public agrees to it and they like it. And we see the transaction been growing like 30 to 40% every month since we changed. So it's, we've grown like 10 times since we uh, changed our model in one year. That sounds like a real big pivot and a, a move that sort of has actually put you on the right path. And I will say as somebody who has tried out the Hungry Hub app, it really does make you feel like you can pick a particular restaurant and get the experience you're looking for. Because now that the price is fixed in your head and you know what uh, each place is going to be valued at, you can actually go and try out the experience as you want to. So you can order whatever you want. You can eat whatever you want so long as you finish it, because that's one of the conditions there. And as a person who has used the app, I can say I was pretty happy with the experience overall. That's great to hear. I always like uh, to hear stories about people using <laughs> But I would say Hungry Hub is almost like an experience product because you don't actually get to understand the value of it until you use it. Because it's not like people think of Hungry Hub as a buffet, but we don't use the word buffet because the experience of buffet and the, the mindset towards buffet is lower quality and everything. So we decided 
And generally also, I think the main thing is uh, you don't have a buffet experience because you're at say, table, you get table service, you order what you want, but you got to eat it Yeah. because if you don't, you get charged for it. And we talked about this. It's so that the customer doesn't contribute to excessive food waste and that really yeah. hurts the restaurant too. Right. But for a, re- a customer, it's a good thing because they get to experience restaurants they wouldn't normally try out because they think maybe it's heavy on the pocket. Like I tried out Maisen, which is a Japanese donkatsu place. And yep. Japanese food is always very expensive, but you always want to try it because it's usually a very high quality. But for the restaurateur, the person who is availing of the app, I guess you pitch to them that you'll have repeat business because now people have understood your food and what it can be and what they can order and when they come back what they think it's valued at did that thought get sort of confirmed by the service providers the restaurants yeah definitely i mean people like we can see the ratings on on our app because we have the ratings and on average it's like 4.4 out of 5 across the board all restaurants which we do have good restaurant bad restaurants so i would say that people are pretty happier than a normal customer going to dine at the restaurant and paying less so with Hungry Hub, they're paying more and they are happier. So I think that that's the kind of thing that restaurant wants. They want people to come in to try the whole experience about the restaurant. Yeah, and it's it's I think it's a good introduction, but also a good way to provide a sustainable offer that can be more long-term and not like other discounts that are very short-term. And one more thing is for the group dining, especially like corporates and all, it works out really well because they start off not saying where they want to go, but how much budget do they have? Then they work from there. So the restaurant industry doesn't work with budget. It works with uh, what cuisine I'm offering or where am I located? So that doesn't solve the corporate problem. But what we are doing is solving that problem. All right. Hungry Hub and the future, how do you feel this is going to go down? Are you going to add more restaurants? Are you going to go to another country now? So what do you got in mind? I mean, business as usual is talking to restaurants on a daily basis, trying to get more restaurants to sign on because the more restaurants, the more opportunity for people to try different things. And some people are located different parts of Bangkok. So we still haven't covered all, but we're getting trying to cover as much as we can and obviously grow to another city, country. Hopefully by early next year, we'll probably have presence in one more country. That's the plan. And then we have other plans in Thailand about new product launch, always things to test around and stuff like that. But yeah, it's a lot of exciting things coming up. Wow. That sounds great, man. And wish you the best with this. Thank you. Great to have a chat with you and we'll see you around. I'm sure the rest of our listeners would love to check out Hungry Hub. If you have any tips for them about how to use the app well, now's the time. I mean, you can reach out to me, right? Look out. And if you want any restaurant suggestion, I'll do an extra service for people who are listening oh. on Brood in Bangkok. I'll tell you the ones that is really good value. I, well, I'm sure they're going to have a chat with you sooner rather than later. And thanks so much. Talk to you soon. Definitely. Thanks for your time. And that's it from Brood in Bangkok for this episode. If you like the show, please go to iTunes and leave it a five-star rating. If you would like to find out more about the show, you can go to broodinbangkok.com and the website will redirect you to more information about the podcast, show notes, and more background information about our guests and anything else you want to know about the show or me. Until next time.